Hello, Marvelites. Welcome to This Week in Marvel. I'm Vice President and Executive Editor Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Marvel's Agent M, joined by Marvel Editorial Director of Digital Media Ben Morse. And we have with us today... I'm Dr. Mark Norell, and I'm the Macaulay Curator of Paleontology at the American Museum of Natural History. Just when we thought our titles were sounding important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a lot of stuff I'm like, wow, I can go bigger. Yeah. In a lot of ways, because uh, we were just talking before Mark about how much you're flying and all this crazy mm-hmm. stuff, but uh, and I was telling Michael, who you know we've we've worked with before here at the museum. Um, I grew up in around New York, and so uh-huh. coming to the museum is like so near and dear to me. Uh, I've been here since I was like six years old, you know, constantly all the time. So it's really cool. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, uh, and you got this new awesome exhibit, right? I mean, sure. uh, what prompted the Dinosaurs Among Us exhibit? Well, a few things, I think, that, you know, we have to have new dinosaur exhibits every now and again because mm-hmm. they are one of the most, or the most popular thing at the museum. But also, this exhibit called Dinosaurs Among Us really highlights a lot of the work that's been done in my laboratory and affiliated laboratories over the last 25 years. So it really, I think, fleshes out a lot of the things which that we've been thinking about and working on for a couple of decades. What are the major things over the past few decades that you're highlighting in this particular exhibit? I think that what we're highlighting is a little bit of everything. I mean, the most obvious thing is when you enter the gallery, people be amazed just at how the animals look. They look unlike dinosaurs or anything people really, you know, seen before or even conceptualized before unless you're really into paleontology. And that is that, uh, that primitively dinosaurs, so all dinosaurs primitively, would have had feathers or feather-like structures. And that's not to say that you know, the the titanosaur or giant sauropod would have had feathers, but at the same time, uh, even large mammals today, like things like elephants, don't have much hair, but they do have some hair. Aquatic mammals like the blue whale doesn't have any hair at all, but nevertheless, I mean, they're still mammals. I mean, they just it's a secondary thing. So primitively, and we would expect that the non-avian dinosaurs uh, that have been, we find as fossils would have been feathered. Yeah, it seems like a bunch of people were... From an outsider's point of view, so a lot of people are like denying that that possibility, and in large part probably because pop culture has been so prolific in you know something like Jurassic Park. With well, that's Jurassic Park going all the way back to like Godzilla. Yeah, mm. these things were really based on giant reptile, giant non-avian reptiles, because really. You know, the, one of the things we talk about in the exhibit also is that birds are reptiles. I mean, just like, just like humans are a type of primate, and they're a type of mammal, and they're a type of vertebrate, birds are a kind of dinosaur, which is a kind of reptile, which is a kind of vertebrate. Yeah, which is kind of awesome when you start thinking about, you know, walking outside and you seeing birds flying around. It's like there's, there's a direct connection to the dinosaurs. So much of a direct connection. So much of a direct connection that... that Living birds are, well, first, well, living birds are all more closely related to one another than they are to any non-avian dinosaur. But that group is more closely related to dinosaurs like Velociraptor than Velociraptor is to any dinosaur that, unless you're really into it, you've ever even heard of before. Oh, no, so, you're say, so you're saying beforehand, talking about, as Ryan mentioned, all the travel you're doing, uh-huh. you're going around the world to do that. What do you what do you do on your trips? What are what's a, what's a week like for you? It's really a combination of things. Mm-hmm. I and mean, this really, at least for the northern hemisphere, this really isn't the excavation season right now. Mm-hmm. So excavation season. 
Yeah, well, it's during the summer. Things, right. guess, so right. that, uh, I'll Kids be are gone off school. You can go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll be, uh, I'm going to give a series of lectures. I'm going to look at a couple of specimens on this trip. Mm. Uh, I'm going to confer with my colleagues in Beijing who are uh, my ex-students, Gao Chen and Xu Xing, and then a couple other pieces, Joe Zhang and Jingmei O'Connor, who I work with pretty closely about what we're going to do this summer and setting up the research plan for the summer. Cool. What, um, so when you do the excavations, where where do you commonly is there a common like location where you're going to? Is it change all the time? It's a general. I mean, sometimes we'll throw in just a new place for the hell of it. Uh, over the holidays, I was in Borneo, for instance, mm -hmm. that, uh, and didn't find anything. Probably, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely go back. So it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go back to excavate. <laughs> but uh, certainly, that you know, the go-to places for a long time for. That may have been in uh, Mongolia. This will be our 27th straight year wow. excavating in the Gobi Desert. And so we'll be out there during July and August. Uh, in June, I'll be in the uh, Carpathian Mountains in the Transylvanian part of Romania. Uh, this will be our sixth year there. We have crews going out to the American West as well, so that they'll be excavating both in Montana as well as in Wyoming this year. And, you know, we, we, we're always looking for the next place. So we're talking about a new place in, on the border between Inner Mongolia and in uh, Liaoning province in northeastern China. You, in the American West, what, are they, what have you commonly found? A lot of just the traditional kinds of things like hadrosars uh, in the Cretaceous and Tyrannosaur teeth in the Cretaceous and then more primitively, in the, in not more primitively, but in the Jurassic period, uh, sauropods, that kind of thing. And, you know, the thing is, is that we're excavating them a little bit differently now than when the, the great collections were made back in the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. I mean, we're excavating them more as archaeological sites. We're trying to figure out the orientation of each individual bone and build spatial diagrams in three dimensions uh, using like simple like, you know, CAD software and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. we'll just look at how the deposit was formed. So it's asking, not many of the animals we find are new animals, but it's asking different questions. We're also very careful when we collect some of these things as well, just because it, uh, uh, some of the work that we're doing on really minute concentrations of certain molecules, uh, either biomolecules or things that might have had to do with color, and that kind of thing that they're very susceptible to contamination. So when we collect them, we don't put a lot of glue on them. We don't put a lot of this other kind of stuff on them because we really, really want to keep them pristine without any additional contaminants being dumped on them. Yeah, I, I can only, I can imagine the catastrophic feelings of something, mm. you know, when you find something really beautiful and cool and very old when something yeah. goes awry, yeah. that's yeah, gotta be heartbreaking. It's like comics. Yeah, yeah. We you know pull out that uh, amazing fantasy fifteen, and yep. you just pour peanut butter on it by accident. <laughs> I don't think you pour peanut. No, butter. No, I've so, seen it happen. All right, fair Depends enough. Depends on how hot it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, with an exhibit like Dinosaurs Among Us, how much work does it take? Like you're talking about going excavating, discovering uh -huh. things. How like how how long do you have in between exhibits? How much work do you have to put in before you have enough to say, all right, we can put up a new exhibit? Well, really, I mean, no, no matter what the topic is, and I've curated a lot of exhibits at the museum, mm -hmm. some on dinosaurs, some on paleontology in general, but mm -hmm. some on other things. Like, I curated the exhibit called uh, uh, The Silk Road, 
and and then I also worked on the exhibit called Mythic Creatures, and I did the exhibit, co-curated the exhibit with Eleanor Sterling here at the museum on our global kitchen on the history of food. Mm-hmm. So, uh, to put an exhibit together from inception till opening day it takes about two years, wow. and it's very much like making a movie. I mean, it's pretty much identical to making a movie. I mean, first you come up with an idea, and then you write, you know, a short pitch, and then. If that gets green-lighted, then it gets put on the schedule, and then uh, it gets a budget code, and then you develop uh, a more developed you know, pitch, which is kind of like a, uh, just like a, a rough script, and then from that, then you pull out what would be the equivalent of a shooting script, which mm-hmm. would be, that's when you start working with the, the designers and with the people in you know content and graphics and you start figuring out the objects you want to show and you start figuring out how you're going to tell the story so then that uh, then develops to building uh, a soft white model like an actual three-dimensional model and then that finally progresses to building a complete three-dimensional architectural colored model and then you know that the content is being worked on all through that uh, but then uh, the uh, architects and the designers step away a little bit, and then fabrication starts. And you know, fabrication usually starts about eight months out from opening day, and you know that's when both the for the specimens, the real specimens we put on display, those are conserved, and armatures are built for those, cases are designed for those. Also, that the model making of the fleshed out animals, that happens, that starts, people start doing that. Similarly, that the people in graphics, or in video rather, actually start ma- media, start making the films, mm-hmm. and then the people in digital start working on the interactives. So it pretty much all, you know, you can see the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. at about, if it's, if it's planned well and you've had no major mishaps, at about, uh, at about two months out, mm-hmm. and then, that's the time when uh, I- installation actually starts to progress, mm-hmm. and then it's just sort of debugging it after that. So. That's great. When yeah. you start talking about it as like a movie, Makes I start sense. thinking like, who's the diva actor in there? What <laughs> specimen is the one who's just like not cooperating today? Uh, uh, you know, yeah. like, do you run out of money? And then you have to go to like a loan shark uh, who becomes an executive producer. Yeah. You know, this is that's just where my you have to get goes. the rights to different dinosaurs. Oh yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. You have the rights to this one, but <laughs> getting rights to the little film clips we want to show. Oh wow! Sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Getting rights to images, or you know, deciding who actually gets a written credit and who doesn't, right. and all that kind of stuff. Sure, that's got to be a lot. So we have uh, at Marvel a bunch of pseudo dinosaur characters, uh-huh. uh, and so I wanted to show a couple of them to you and just get your first thoughts when you see them. So this one yeah. is Stegron. <laughs> I like that you laughed at Stegron because yeah. he is Stegron. Most, most people laugh ben, at Stegron. What's his deal? Stegron is a, it's, I believe his name is actually Vincent, Vincent Stegron. Stegron. Uh, he was a human who transformed himself into a dinosaur, and his whole agenda now is to make everyone dinosaurs because that's the way it should be. Yeah. In his mind, <laughs> you're, you're you're on board. You're relating. That. You're relating to him. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, it looks like some, you know, in the village on Halloween. So. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a wacky character. Um, one of our other favorites is Devil Dinosaur. Uh, who actually is starring in a co-starring in a book right now? Yep. What's uh, Devil Dinosaur and Moon Girl? Yeah, or Moon Girl and Devil Devil Moon Dinosaur. Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Yeah, which is um, Devil Dinosaur. 
There actually is a dinosaur named that. So, really? Really? Uh, it's a uh, uh, ceratopsian dinosaur, you know, mm-hmm. like a triceratops. It's called mm-hmm. Diabloceratops. Oh. <laughs> this one's see. a little different. Yeah, he's slightly different. Yeah. Um, Looks like a T-Rex. Yeah. yeah. Uh, T-Rexes, are they are they safe in our minds? Or, or they would they have had feathers? They would have feathers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the Dinosaurs Among Us exhibit, that we have a full-size Tyrannosaurus, it's not Tyrannosaurus rex, but it's a very close relative of Tyrannosaurus rex called Eutyrannus, uh, which was found in China, in northern China. It's about 140 million years old. It's 23 feet long, mm. and there's been a couple of specimens found that actually preserve feathers, and the whole thing was has this entire body covered with feathers. That's amazing. I mean, they're not the kind of feathers that you would see on a modern bird. They look right. more like... You know, almost like porcupine quills, but it's huh. uh, but it's that's it's even a cooler. Big, shaggy <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> um, and you know, one of the uh, one of the crazy things about devil dinosaur is he's the bright red bright color, red, right. partially because he was created in like the mid seventies, and you know, it popped on the page. Mm-hmm. Are yeah. there? You know, we a lot of the dinosaurs I think we think of and have been seen. You know, at least in pop culture, very green and brown. Right. Would they have had? Those kinds of brighter colors. We feel that pretty strongly that they would for a, a number mm. a number of reasons. I mean, one is that uh, living birds have uh, very specialized eyes, and living birds, when they perceive the world, they perceive it much different than we do because they see pretty far into the ultraviolet. So when mm. they look at other birds, for instance, or even other things that might appear white to us, they can be vividly patterned if you have bird eyes to be able to see them. Also, uh, birds just not only see more colors and more spectra than we see, they, they have much more visual acuity than us. So it's like looking at an old, you know, 1024 monitor compared to a brand new one. And that's why things like hawks and eagles can see something, a mouse, which is about three inches long from like <laughs> a thousand feet in the air, yeah. that they can actually see it. Wow. So that, you know, birds really go all out for color. And that uh, that's why so many birds are, are colorful. And they're, I said they're even more colorful than we think because we can't see as many colors as they can. So they use color for camouflage, they use color for display, they use it for all sorts of thermal regulation, they use it for all sorts of different things. Uh, and since that crocodiles are the closest relative to living birds and they have very, very bird-like eyes, we would assume that they're very, very, well, we know that they're very visual animals themselves. I mean, they themselves aren't brightly colored because there's only 23 species alive today, and they're restricted to one ecological niche, which is probably not a good thing to be colored in. Uh, but uh, uh, certainly, we would predict that these animals would have been brilliantly colored. Uh, there's some work that's underway, some of the work that I participated in, of how we can look at different characteristics that, believe it or not, are preserved in the fossils to really, really determine what color some of these things were. Wow. I mean, there's a little animal called Microraptor. Uh, from, uh, that sounds terrifying. I want one. I yeah. want to have one, like, <laughs> hang out, like, pet it, and then, like, go get them. But it's a, you know, it's a small animal with also about 130 million years ago in northeastern China, and we were able to determine that when it was alive, it was black. But not only was it black, it was iridescent. So, oh, cool. Because the way in which these uh, structures are oriented, they're not the impart color. They're not just sort of random. They're all in line, so it works mm-hmm. like a diffraction grading. So it looks like a blackbird when you see it in the yeah. park. When it's, it looks black, but then when it turns in the sun, it looks blue. Hmm. So it, it would have looked like that That's one's neat. alive. And those experiments are just in a very nascent stage, so that uh, I think that 10 years from now, we'll know a lot more. But that's so exciting. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
just the the evolution of the technology and the things that you guys can develop and how oh, yeah. to develop that's just amazing well that's the fun part about being a scientist i mean people always ask me you know that you must really really like dinosaurs and stuff and I mean, I, I really like science, and mm -hmm. I like the kind of creative aspect of it. So a lot of the work that the lab does, it's not like we really even care that much, but we do care is that if we're clever enough to figure it out or not. <laughs> and so we'll be sitting around, you know, having a lab meeting in an Irish bar or something, and we'll be going, well, I really, <laughs> I really wonder if we could figure this out. And yeah. then we sit there and we go, well, you know, what uh, technologi technology could we use? What new fossils could we use? What theoretical and mathematical tools could we right. use to be able to answer that question. So it's and the challenge of the problem solving. It's the challenge of the problem solving. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what makes it fun and really creative. Wow. If it was just sitting around naming new dinosaurs all the time, it would be a pretty boring job. Yeah. Uh, if you ever need mm. help, yeah, I'm happy to tag <laughs> in. I will name Seriously. a bunch of new dinosaurs for you. All right, I got one more character uh, for you. This guy, his name is Sauron. And... Uh, Okay, this isn't even a dinosaur. This is like a... <laughs> it's like is, a pterodactyl man. Well, it's right. kind of a combination of a pterodactyl and a bat because yeah. it has these like struts right there in the middle of the wing. Right. Yep. And bats have those. Pterodactyls just have a flight membrane that's supported by one super long finger right. that goes all the way to the end. So Sauron, discredited. Yeah. <laughs> would, you, would he have had feathers? on? Uh, like if... if he was a pterosaur, certainly a pterodactyl yeah. because it, uh, there's been a number of pterosaurs found both in Kyrgyzstan uh, as well within in China uh, which have you know feather-like structures that we feel are homologous or the same as the, the things you see in very uh, primitive dinosaurs because pterosaurs are a group that's the most closely related to dinosaurs which including birds mm -hmm. yeah now you've said devil dinosaur could have existed in so far as there may have been a red Tyrannosaurus well we could we don't know exactly we what can speculate were, but you know a lot of the you know, when you go to the exhibit a lot of the way in which that we've colored things mm -hmm. is based on what we call echomorphs. Mm -hmm. So we know quite a bit about the environment of these animals today. Mm -hmm. And that when you have a really big predator, you look at really big predators that are alive today, they're like, you know, like they're, they're either, they go totally monocolor like uh, uh, pumas, cougars, uh, uh, lions, or that they go, uh, you know, camouflage like tigers, mm -hmm. cheetahs, and mm -hmm. leopards. and you know, we have a little of both in there. Usually, the, the things that go that go uh, camouflage is more just the way it's breaking up lights. That they're they're dealing with confused backgrounds. Is that you know leopards are primarily live in trees, and you know cheetahs live in deep grass in the savanna, and tigers live in the forest. Whereas mm -hmm. lions are much more sort of open living animals, and things so. All right, so the other big characteristic of devil, besides being red, is great with human children. Yeah. <laughs> is there any possibility we have proof that if a Tyrannosaurus Rex had been around kids, they would befriend them? No. No? That's, that's unfortunate. None whatsoever. We're going to have to talk to the editors. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to overhaul this book. Yeah. I mean, like, well, you can never tell for sure. I'm sure they would have been lunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we go, so you talked about all the exhibits and how long uh -huh. they take. What what's what's been the like the largest exhibit that you've ever put together? Well, largest by pure size mm -hmm. is the Titanosaur downstairs, which mm -hmm. opened a couple of months ago. It's the largest dinosaur on display anywhere in the world, and it's 123 feet long, wow. stands over 19 feet high uh, at the uh, at the hip, 
and it's a really big animal. <laughs> yeah, your media team did a great job yeah. uh, sort of getting that, like showing it on social media and stuff, and I was mm -hmm. like, wow, that guy's big. Well, not only is it big, it's not even fully grown. So <laughs> How far along in its its life cycle do you think it was? Pretty far, about 85%, okay. but it would have gotten, still, still would have got. it hasn't reached adult size yet. It's incredible. adult size yet. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. Crazy. This is great. This is good. I love just it. Just hang out here for the rest of the day. Again, I'm happy to name dinosaurs. You know, you're on your trips. You just wanna, you just wanna ask for like so many different species yeah. of Panagosaurus. Right? Yeah. It just it rolls off the tongue. It actually does. Yeah. Wait a minute. Panagopod. I mean, look, we'll we'll talk. I'll talk. Um, very cool. Uh, if if fans wanna, you know, catch up and see more, like. Are there ways to check out more of your lectures, or do you have any books or things that they can yeah, like, catch up on? Yeah, there's a few things on the, on the website, and that there's a lot of public programs that are being developed, both around the Titanosaurus as well as the Dinosaurs Among Us, that will be occurring throughout the summer and then into the fall. Cool. cool. Yeah, and, and uh, guys, if you're listening, you want to, if you're coming to New York, you're in New York, amnh.org, check out the website, come to the museum, because it is a wonderful place. And thank you so much for joining us. No problem at all. Take care. Thanks. Sure. This is Marvel, your universe.